This podcast was produced by Morley Radio. Welcome to Artcast, a new podcast presented by Matt G, artist and subject leader for fine art at Morley College. The decision to do this podcast was inspired by photographs taken from the polio outbreak in the 1940s where students were being remotely taught by radio. This podcast was be a series of informal discussions with artists about their work and how they have adapted during the current crisis we have been living through. The aim is to disseminate material for students by limiting screen time and providing a feed of information for when they are taking a break from the screen. My seventh guest is Susan Collis, who is an alumni of Kensington and Chelsea College, which is now known as the Chelsea Centre as part of Morley College. Susan creates extremely carefully crafted objects. These objects consist of a wide range of valuable and seductive materials. They tend to imitate the mundane and everyday spillages, drips, stained overalls, paint splattered tools, and are executed to incredible precision. The works are based on themes of craft, labor, value, the art gallery context, and the everyday. From a personal perspective, Susan's work first came to my attention while I was studying, and I've been a massive fan ever since. I was pointed towards documentation from the exhibition Out of the Ordinary, Spectacular Craft, which was at the V&A Museum from 2007 to 2008. In this exhibition, Susan used embroidery to produce trompe l'oeil effects on a painting overall, and with another work, what appeared at first glance to be paint drips on a stepladder were in fact intricately inlaid mother of pearl, opal and diamonds, painstakingly crafted to appear as a stepladder left by an installation team of technicians. Susan Collis is represented by Seventeen Gallery, which is located in Haggerston, London. If you're not familiar with Susan's work and would like to see some work as you listen in, please head over to 17gallery.com slash artists slash Susan dash Collis. The link will also be in the description of this podcast. So Susan, welcome. And how are you today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not too bad at all. So I usually just kick off with asking a pretty mundane question. Um, what's your favourite colour? Blue. Um, why is that? I think. I have no idea. Maybe it's the colour of a fantastic sky on a beautiful day. Yeah. But it's also quite calming, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely lovely. I'm supposed to love um, yellow, apparently, if you're a Gemini. But Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit more about your experience of art school? Because I think that would be really beneficial for our students to hear um, sure, here sure. at Kenston Chelsea College, which is now known as Chelsea Centre as part of Morley College. So you studied under Peter Stanley. Um, I did, yeah. Could you talk to us a little bit more about what sort of work you were making at the time? Yeah, well, to start with, um, I returned to study as a mature student. So I think I was about 35 when I was going to Kensington, Chelsea, and it was a portfolio building course it was called a pre-foundation then, and it was a portfolio building course for um, applying to applying for a foundation. So what was I doing? I think I was, it was very, very broad, actually, because I think, you know, I was probably painting, painting and drawing. And I think like a lot of people, I kind of thought I wanted to be a painter because that's what you often equate mm. with art. And I think I'd met somebody, I'd met a friend, you know, who was a, a painter and just 
loved her work and really wanted to to do something like that myself. So, but I just remember doing a lot of drawing under Peter and all sorts of different things, you know, animation, learning how to use clay, learning the absolute basics, really, learning how to plaster and make moulds and quite practical, mm-hmm. um, but also just beginning to kind of get a feel of themes, I suppose, that would continue to, to interest me. Yeah, and you touched upon the role of drawing in your practice, which is something that has come to the forefront in particular with an exhibition in 2017. Uh in an exhibition called When We Loved You Best of All, which was at Rochdale Art Gallery. So can you talk to us a little bit more about how drawing plays a role continually in your practice, um, particularly those large-scale drawings where you're sort of referencing um, architectural palimpsests? Yes, yeah. Well, I think start with, it's like I couldn't draw for toffee and I still can't really that well. So, you know, if I was asked to represent something I think you know it's not my strong point but I do remember just through life drawing and through just being given really basic skills about looking I suppose at K and C that um just sort of realizing that yeah actually it's something that you can do and it isn't something often that you've been born with this god-given ability to do so I think I just really like it might be being lazy actually because I hate having to stand up and do really big work so a lot of my work in the studio a lot of my drawing work is it's I would say all of it is done sort of on a tabletop um although of course the the one that you're that you've referred to uh, was actually um vertical though mm. so, because it was it was on this piece of building Ever since I sort of started my art career, I realized very, very quickly that I had to work with assistants because um, they, they were just too sort of large scale. And, uh, you know, I just I, I could probably if I was making everything myself, make about two pieces a year. So, you know, I've always had a lot of help with my work and I've mm. always worked with a team of assistants. And, and for that particular piece that you're talking about which had to be made quite quickly. I think there were about six of us, you know, that were working on that because it, it was quite arduous actually because you're just sort of sometimes in quite an awkward position at the top of the ladder um, and, and just a completely repetitive movement. of. So that, that piece was basically um, a rubbing, so sort of like a brass rubbing, I suppose, but using a piece of architecture. And I use a really thin Fabriano paper that um, will just about sort of bend to my will and, um, you know, using a pressure, the pressure of a pencil mm. will take on the shape of the brickwork and all the different things underneath. So it becomes um, quite so, sculptural as well. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> so it becomes a sort of 2D, 3D type of thing. And mm. I think that's something that I've been really interested in actually or, or right from the start is the sort of difference between something that's 2D and 3D mm. and sort of trying to make a 2D um, surface look like a three-dimensional one and vice versa. Yeah and the materials are a vital component within your work in terms of concepts around value and labour 
Uh, one of the first works that I came across of yours was Made Good, uh, which appears as a screw within a rule plug, but it's made from coral, 18 karat white gold, onyx, silver, and is completed with an encrusted diamond in the screw head. I was wondering, do these concepts of value change over time depending on the material's value to society um, in terms of monetary or sentimental or even trends? Or is the work based on your like personal desire for luxury materials? No, it definitely isn't at all um, based on, on a desire to use luxury materials. Um, it, it just came from the starting point of, of really working with that idea of an empty gallery space. Mm which a lot of artists have done in the past. But I wanted the viewer to walk into the space and think that there was nothing there. But it was almost like the absolute opposite of that was then to, so all those little things that were would be classed as nothing, like a, um, you know, a raw plug with a screw in it or a drop cloth on the floor, or, you know, different things like that. Um, it's almost like I wanted to use materials that were the opposite of nothing in a way. Yeah. You know, so I suppose the value of those materials comes from the fact that the opposite of nothing almost is something that's so uh, almost baroque and opulent and, you know, sort of all, all the kind of things that you go to that were the opposite of something that was worthless. Yeah, exactly. That that, that yeah. puts it well, because instead of being worthless or viewed as being worthless, they have a monetary or a sort of, no, not, not just monetary, but like a po- oops, sorry, <laughs> poetic um, value as well, really, you know, yeah. um, an ideological value. And that was from the show Don't Get Your Hopes Up, which was at 17 Gallery exactly. in 2007, yeah. if anyone wants to look back at the archive. So it was very... Yeah, it's very minimal in terms of installation view perspectives. And on first sight, as you say, the, the show could appear very empty. But have you ever played with hiding works or leaving them off the floor plan, for instance, or people occasionally being drawn to other objects within a space? I think people have definitely been drawn to other objects in a space. And that, I think, is something that's quite interesting you know I, I used to not do that actually I wanted I suppose I wanted that everything it, that you saw in the gallery was something that I'd made mm. and and then I sort of I think I, I was just forced then into often when in being invited to be in a group show you'd be somewhere that might be really messy and had all sorts of other stuff going on mm. and I you know it's quite interesting People do then go up to something else and go, ooh, you know, is that, has that been made as well? So I suppose that you could say that that was interesting because it forces people to look at the mundane, you know, and observe it minutely. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm still the jury's ever so slightly out for that, yeah. for me, actually. Um, so I was going to talk about materials again. Um, one of the most comprehensive and incredible materialists is uh, Gas Boys from 2012. So just to talk to the listeners about that piece, um, which looks like some bits of wood tied together 
against lent against the gallery wall. So the material list is cedar, mother of pearl, sterling silver, oxidized silver, rosewood, white holly veneer, ebony veneer, mother of pearl, walnut, oxidized silver, beechwood, pear and white holly veneer, silver, smoky quartz, black diamonds, amber, hand-knitted Japanese silk, white holly, uh, silver bronze, beechwood, again, holly veneer used in another part of it, and a cigar box, cedar, white gold and smoky topaz. Um, I was wondering what sort of portion of the labour lies within carefully sourcing materials? So in terms of your artistic process, you mentioned that you collaborate with your team of uh, assistants. And I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that that process of sourcing materials, because you use a lot of very exotic materials within mm, your work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I started off going to Hatton Garden. You know, I just thought, right, I want I worked for the gemstones. And then, yeah, I just was looking up every exotic material that I could think of and um, getting them from where I could. But I think as time went on, then, you know, it became apparent that, yeah, you've got to be really thoughtful about how you source them as well. Um, things like the Mother of Pearl, you know, and then to be perfectly honest, I didn't really, I learned that as I went along, you know. Mm. So I just remember um, someone saying to me, I had a show in Paris and they said, oh, you've got to go to the jewellery quarter there because there's amazing shops full of Mother of Pearl. And I went and got quite a lot of Mother of Pearl from there. And then, you know, I kind of learned afterwards that, yeah, there's very ethical and unethical ways of producing Mother of Pearl. So that one of those works that had the Mother of Pearl in it, um, I had an exhibition the year before last in the States and it was really difficult to get a lot of the stuff over because they're import laws now, you know, it's, which is a good thing, but you have to prove uh, exactly, you know, you have to prove that um, the material's been ethically sourced and mm. I couldn't prove it. I couldn't prove it. So, you know, that's sort of another layer that kind of, that was added as time went by. But I think uh, with that piece that you, you just talked about with Gas Boys, it, it came about because uh, my studio was in Hoxton at the time and they were, there's lots, there was loads and loads of regeneration going on in Hoxton. And every time I got to my studio, there was a skip outside and there'd be all these big pieces of wood in there. And I just dragged a few of those out and recreated them. Mm. So I sort of used things that, so if there was blue paint, you know, I'd think, right, okay, what could I use to recreate blue paint that was actually a precious material? And, and that became uh, lapis lazuli, you know. So it was just sort of looking at the colours and then maybe if there were lots of bent screws and different things like that in there uh just sort of getting I wanted to get I, it's that sort of opposites thing again really so from these things that were completely unloved they're just been ripped out of a building and thrown in a skip mm. to sort of counteract that with with materials that were loved and worth a lot of money and you know, had had a lot of um, kind of emotional weight to them, I suppose, really. 
Yeah, I was going to ask about how you start these drips and these these embroidered drips or or the splats that are recreated with pencil. Are they generally taken from imagery or still lifes or um, are they, um, are they quite Yeah, intuitive? so I think all the the drawings of sort of paint splat have been paint splats that I've made myself. Okay. And in some ways that's kind of a, there's a, there's a different concept going on there. And I suppose that was something to do with, with carefulness and, and care and the idea of something being messy and unlovely, I suppose, you know, that those splashes are, you know, very quickly done. And I, and I guess I was also, there was a nod to the idea of abstract expressionism mm. there as well. Um, and then all my recreations of those have been done sort of with quite a fine kind of drawing process. But in terms of the splatters on the boiler suit or um, dust sheets, they were often, they were real mm. and, and on the step ladders. Um, so they were a, a lexicon of marks that I kind of took from all different surfaces all right. over the place and then all put together in one piece. So I would sort of, every time I saw an interesting mark that I knew was recreatable with the material that I wanted to recreate it with, I would trace that and keep hold of that somewhere. Yeah. And I'm just looking at as well at some of your works whereby you, you recreate these paper bags, well, not paper bags, but originally like laundry bags, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Bio ink and graphite and paper construction. It's just incredible that the technique that you, that you use to recreate these objects. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the process. Do you enjoy that process? Cause it's obviously. Well, again, you know, it, it wouldn't be enjoyable if I was doing it all myself. I think I right. would have been carted off many years ago but I kind of made that quite um that became a performance piece um which should be on 17 uh website as well it was called sweat and because the 17 original 17 gallery was in Hoxton and it was um it was in an old shop and there were quite a lot of you know there there were lots of bag shops there and and there was for some reason loads and loads and loads of shoe shops but uh, I was kind of making reference to that and the idea of the sweatshop and the idea of artists making artists using assistance as well Mm. because it's just something that most artists keep really quiet about so I think I've just always been really interested in the production Mm. of everything including being an artist but Mm. you know you're you are actually told by your gallery not to tell people that you use assistance and everybody uses assistance as soon as they start selling work you know because you can't there's just absolutely no way as soon as there becomes a demand for your work Mm. you couldn't I just don't know that anyone could really I know loads of painters who don't paint their own work either you know so it's like it's not just um people who draw and um and make sculpture Mm. but of course the person who buys it wants to think that they've got the artist's hand on it yeah the artist's hand has usually been on a bit of it but you know not all so i did um um this performance piece where 
that it, it was set up like a sweatshop and people were making those bags. So when you went into the gallery, there was a team of about seven okay. people in there at any given time. And it was like a sort of production line. And it was quite funny because um, I'd told them that they didn't have to, you know, they had to kind of be there to look as if they were doing it when people came in. Yeah. But they didn't have to really do that much work. <laughs> and they actually made loads of them. They were just sort of, um, I think they really did enjoy doing it. And it is the sort of thing that you can, they chatted and drank tea and, you know, filled in little squares all day. So I think there is something quite seductive about the work up yeah. to a point for me. Um, but it is something that I don't think you could do for hours and hours. And hours. No, of course. And then, and the work lies within the idea and the original yeah. planning of the of the piece. And, it, and like you say, if you're selling multiple pieces, then yeah, it doesn't make sense because you obviously want to move on to making other work as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they have all taken a ridiculous amount of man hours to mm. make. Um, you know, so that was okay when you were at college because I didn't mind that, you know, and you've got the time. But as soon as you know, you've got other fish to fry. It be, it does become really difficult to spend the amount of time needed um, on them. Yeah. What was uh, the piece, looking back, that you most enjoyed imitating in terms of like imitating a certain process of a drip or a splat? Was there one in particular that sort of stands out? I think it, for me, I think my favourite pieces um, in terms of making uh, and just generally are, the, are all the wooden pieces. And I think it's because to start with, I was making all these things, you know, so I was making versions of a boiler suit or a screw or, um, you know, every or a step ladder. And I really wanted the work to become a bit more abstract. And as soon as I did that, as soon as I just started reproducing these lumps of wood that had just been torn out of buildings, they were these abstract shapes. Yeah. And it just was a real challenge, a really enjoyable challenge to sort of work out how best to do that. And, um, you know, and they vary quite a lot. So some of the, a lot, most of them have got like a lot of those materials that you, um, described at the beginning of the woods, mm. the different woods were veneers. So yeah, we would just cut out all these veneers and sort of marketry, um, using marketry to, jigsaw them together in place yeah and I really enjoyed working on those mm. and I and I just sort of really felt like there was these pieces of wood we had these kind of noble quality to them you know because they'd sort of served their purpose and and there'd been these kind of really big necessary architectural elements in a building and then um just you know suddenly just chucked away because so there was all that going on as well. And the fact that I was a part of that because my studio block in the end got knocked down, you know, yeah. we were part of the gentrification of Hoxton. Um, so all that was sort of all that kind of, all the ethics around that sort of were going into that piece of work really and the ethics of change, I suppose. And so I, yeah, I it's really interesting those. to hear that it was referencing a big part of that process of gentrification and also mm. also unfortunate familiar situation that's occurring more and more often it would seem with artist studios 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have you found that over the last year and a bit, your work's changed in any way due to the lockdowns or? <laughs> it's become very intermittent. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, yes, I've struggled because I, my studio is in London, uh, but I don't live in London. Right. And so at the same time, it, or just before the pandemic hit, um, my husband who used to live in London was made redundant and became freelance. So I, I live in near Rye in East Sussex. Mm. And so it's a bit of a, you know, trawl. So I was always going up with him and then we'd stay up there for a few days and I'd be in my studio for a few days. So I have found it a massive struggle to work mm. from home. And I would say it's nigh on impossible. And it's only really been the last few months that I've been going back to the studio again and getting stuck in. Yeah. And luckily I, um, I got a commission from somebody to make some work for him. So, you know, that's just forced me to sort of get back and, and get on with things. But yeah, I have to say I've been a bit remiss, really. Yeah. But you've been able to get back to the studio a bit more recently. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. good to hear. Have you got a favorite piece of work that you've made? Ooh, I do. I think um, maybe it's just because they're the most recent as well. I I um, I do like the tarpaulin pieces that mm. were in uh, my last show at seventeen, which I think was two years ago or three years ago. So that's just sort of similar technique to the bags. So yeah. it's the same kind of material that um, tarpaulin type material, plastic sort of woven. But they're drawn. Actually, it's really annoying because, um, you know, the vitamin D drawing book. Yeah. That's just come out and they've featured those pieces in and, um, they've actually put the, the way I made them. They've, they've got it wrong, which is so annoying. And they didn't ask me. So they've, they, in the book, it says I wove. I don't know if you're familiar with those, the, the tarpaulin pieces. It just looks like pieces of blue ripped tarpaulin okay. and um it does really look woven but that is the beauty of my trump loy yeah. <laughs> i didn't realize that it's just it is just a drawing on paper the one that's called the center cannot hold which that's is on right. the website. yeah yeah so it's yeah. ink and yeah. pencil on paper and sterling, yeah. sterling yeah. silver uh, well. the sterling silver was literally a little um screw that it was hanging from right yeah yeah or a hook, I think it well, was, actually. In a way, I guess that shows that you've completely <laughs> fooled them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that, I think, would have been even madness beyond what I'm capable of, you know, because that would have been like cutting out millions and millions of strips of paper, drawing on them, yeah. and then weaving them all together again. It does really appear as if you've done that, though. But, yeah, mm. I agree. Mm. That would be... Yeah, it's yeah. just a flat piece of paper. Wow. <laughs> what advice would you give to the class of 2021 going into 2022? I don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed to say that, am I? Um, it's a really tough world out there, actually. I think that is, you know, without wanting to be sort of depressing, I think that um, if I'd known now about the art world what i if i had known then 
what I know now. It's not a very nice world, actually, the art world. Mm. I've really learnt that. And, um, yeah, you've got, you know, you just have to put up with a lot of horrible people, horrible things, and I've had to. It's unregulated. Yeah, it could do with a lot of changes. Um, mm. it's, it's very, it's, it's quite corrupt actually. So I think, uh, what I would say to people is, you know, you have to f- follow your dream and you have to follow what you really love doing. And mm. that's the most important thing. And don't get too tied up about the money side. And, yeah. you know, honestly, I think that it, there's something to be said for not having it as your business mm. because once it's your business, it just becomes a bit of a monster. And, yeah. Um, yeah, we had... It's uh, kind Ma- of sometimes better when it's your pleasure. Yeah, mm. yeah we had uh, Matthew Burrows on recently as well. Right. He's obviously got yeah. a lot of ideas about breaking down the whole idea of the gatekeepers to the art world and creating a model whereby the art world's more sustainable and in terms mm. of artists supporting each other, being, mm, being um, pa- patron, to patrons happen. to each other. So yeah. hopefully that will continue to yeah. have an impact and there'll be other initiatives along the way, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's just good to be prepared for what happens if you do get a measure of success. You know, mm. it's you really have to take a hell of a lot of rough with the smooth that you might have. <laughs> so lots of resilience, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Okay. But you know, it's still a wonderful way to, um, it's a wonderful way to make a living. And mm. it's, you know, I'm never happier than when I'm in that zone, you know, when you're absolutely absorbed in what you're doing and, um, and making. So yeah, yeah that's, it's really important to hold on to how great that, that feels as well. Yeah. And what sort of work are you working on in the studio? Can you give us any insights to work that's maybe on the horizon? Yeah. So um, the next exhibition that I've got coming up is in um, Lord Genelard Gallery in London. And that's next year, the group show, uh, Sub Radar, it's called. And yeah, I'm kind of experimenting with the the rubbings at the moment. But um, using white pencil, which gives quite an interesting, it's it sort of, it's quite an interesting sculptural effect because um, all the all the other ones are made with graphite, so you can really see this sort of shiny surface of graphite. With the white pencil, you can't really see any difference between the what's made that those indentations and mm. the rest of the paper. So they sort of like loom out well i'm hoping they're going to loom out in a ghostly fashion but um yeah that's what i'm sort of working on at the moment okay just experimenting with that really yeah sounds good and we'll we'll put a link for that into the description for the podcast as well um that's great thank you so much for coming on to our cast is there any last things you wanted to say I don't think so. I'm no. going for a swim now. I live next to the sea, so I'm, I'm going <laughs> to go. Of course, yeah. yeah. It's nice, is it? I can imagine I'm it's pretty cold swim. cold at the moment in the, in the sea. Yeah, it is cold, but it's wonderful. Exhilarating. Actually. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, well, hope, hope you have a good swim. So. Thank you very much. Yeah.
Enjoy unwrapping the meanings and visions behind the vibrant, energetic artworks of artists including Toulouse-Lautrec and his depictions of bohemian nightlife, Gauguin's non-Western idyll, Cezanne's radiant colors and Van Gogh's brilliantly swirling, spontaneous brushwork. To learn more about the post-impressionist artwork and the spiritual meanings behind them, visit the Morley College website at morleycollege.ac.uk and search Post-Impressionism, Spiritual Meanings and Dazzling Artwork. <laughs>